The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, April 25th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I want to talk about Bernie and Bernie's numbers. I was looking at his Medicare and Medicaid numbers and his tax numbers and they don't add up as much as some of his everyone else in the world's numbers on those issues. But those aren't the exact numbers that I'm thinking of. There are Bernie numbers that are weird and odd, but there are also some Bernie numbers that are very, very unfair to Bernie. And yes, I know I'm doing this on the day when Joe Biden has announced for the presidency. We shall get to him. I do note about the Joe Biden candidacy that it was reported today that a couple weeks ago he called up Anita Hill to apologize. So I guess you call up people to apologize or at least to express regrets when you're running for president. I guess I'll wait till I run for president to give Karen Nackbar that call. I probably did make fun of Karen Nackbar a little too much in high school, but never about her name. Never about her name. Karen. It's a lovely name. Bernie, though, when it comes to numbers, the guy gets a lot of guff. CNN, breaking news. Bernie Sanders harshly criticized the wealth of U.S. senators. Okay, where's the news part? During his first campaign for office in 1971. All right, still does that. Let's see what's different about 71. CNN goes on. First campaign for office in 1971, calling it immoral that half the members of the Senate were millionaires. I bet he thinks that's immoral today, except now it's closer to 80%. CNN continues, Sanders' decades-old comments, which were picked up in December 1971 by the Bennington Banner, a local Vermont newspaper. Ooh, December 1971, the year of my birth. I checked, it wasn't the date of my birth. But it is notable that if I were a millionaire when I was born in 1971, that is just like a kid being born today who is worth $6.8 million. Another way to say that is the amount of wealth that Bernie was criticizing then is actually five or six times as much as Bernie made in his 2016 and 2017 tax filings. In other words, this is not hypocrisy. This is not hypocrisy reaching through the ages and presuming that hypocrisy also means that you can't change in 47 years. This is just not hypocrisy by any measure. What it is, is idiocy. And to further this idiocy is the fact that CNN tags the online story of this scoop in 71 of Bernie criticizing millionaires then. They tag this story with the now familiar mashup of Bernie going off on the millionaires and the billionaires. Billionaires and millionaires have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the political process supporting Republican candidates. And today is payback time for them. The bulk of the benefits in this legislation go to large profitable corporations and to millionaires and billionaires. Well, my view is you don't give, as Trump wants to, huge tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires. Millionaires and billionaires, of which Bernie is the first just barely, or at least was the first for two out of his 77 years on Earth. And can we just note, and if I'm boring you with this math in general, I make this point often, but I think that there are a lot of Americans, your fellow Americans, not you, who don't realize that a billion is a thousand millions. So billionaires and millionaires are about as equivalent as this scenario. So if your coworker came into you and said, 
oh, I'm I'm wearing this jacket for the first time this spring, and I checked the pocket, and I found a dime, you would say, that anecdote wasted my time. Are you a child? But if your coworker said, and I checked the pocket, and I found a $100 bill, you would say, oh my God, lunch is on you. It would be a good anecdote. But in percentage terms, the difference between a dime and $100 is the same as the difference between a million and a billion. I'm sorry I have to go there, but I'm much more sorry that someone thinks it's news that in 1971, Bernie Sanders was describing a level of wealth that he has not even come close to in his 2016, 17, 18, or 19 existence. So sorry, America. I'm sorry. You have to deal with that. On the show today... It's a compelling spiel about the issue of ambivalence. Huh? Are you hooked? Ambivalence examined. But first, Nathaniel Rich has written a pressing and readable book on the state of the world or the state of the world before it got to this state. He looks at the decade of the late 70s and most of the 80s to find out where we went wrong and... Was it hot in there, or was it just us? Losing Earth, A Recent History, is a compelling book that grew out of a 30,000-word article that took over the New York Times magazine. It's a weird thing. As an article, it was pretty long. But as a book, this thing's really digestible, (laughs) even though it's a little bit longer. Nathaniel Rich wrote it, and I was just fascinated by the history and the implications, and also his perspective on how much of an indictment it is on our culture and ourselves and our generation, even though Nathaniel and I may be from slightly different generations. Nathaniel, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I love that you looked from 79 to 89 because we always hear your generation, meaning my generation and the older people, you screwed it up for us. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I was in high school maybe when most of the bad stuff, when the inflection points occurred. But is that why you looked at the decade to try to trace it back as far as scientists first started saying that global warming or the greenhouse effect, as they called it, might be a real thing? Well, I felt that the story from... 89 to the present is a depressing one, an important one, but I feel like it had been written about. But I did feel that this this earlier period that's all but forgotten, including by many of the folks who are now leading, you know, the climate activism in this country, had been totally forgotten and was also a way to go deeper into some of the, the larger questions that I feel are, arise out of, out of our, our failure to solve the problem. And so it, it, in some ways it, it gave me more of a blank slate or because because of course the problem itself and the activists who were concerned about it had something of a blank slate during that period 79 you have scientific consensus and the birth of what we know of uh, today as uh, climate activism the first people who were starting to tear their hair out and saying holy crap what are we going to do about this when they were tearing their hair out, was it because this is the way the earth is trending? When did they start really getting frustrated at the inaction of our government and people who could take action? Yeah, that came a little later. I mean, at first, their response, I think, was much like all of ours when we come across the problem, which is, oh, my God, this seems really bad. Uh, surely, if it's as bad as, as it appears, uh, some smart, powerful people somewhere are dealing with it. And, and Rafe Pomerantz realizes that they're not. And so he thinks, well, okay, this is easy to solve. All we have to do 
is tell them what's going on and surely yeah. out of out of prudence uh, and common sense they'll act and so that's that's the first you know third of of the decade is he basically goes around Washington and Capitol Hill and has meetings with people at the highest levels of the government he's a very well connected uh, political lobbyist and he tells them and he assumes that'll be enough and and it's not and that's the first it's not exactly pushback but it's the first frustration um, and then, you know, the next effort is essentially he says, well, we need to we need to get the public concern to put pressure on these politicians. And he does that. And then that also doesn't quite work. And so there's a series of these sort of mounting frustrations and disillusionments. And yet by the end of the decade, they've progressed tremendously to the point of global uh, diplomatic talks uh, to, for a global treaty that's seen at the time as a, as a solution. Good. Let's take it to there. So this is now up to the George H. W. Bush administration, right? Yeah, and and it it after the you know the summer of 1988 is is sort of the flashpoint, I guess pun intended. It's the hottest summer in history. James Hansen delivers this famous testimony before Congress where he says global warming is no longer you know just a prediction. It's already present in the observable mm-hmm. data. And public concern spikes dramatically, public awareness spikes dramatically, and even George Bush on the campaign trail makes it an issue. So you have this weird, the weirdest thing that you lay out is that the tension within the administration is you have an oil man on one side and a, as a top advisor, and a scientist on the other side. But the oil man's James Baker, who wants to do something about the greenhouse effect, and the scientist, John Sununu, who is the greatest impediment to doing something about the greenhouse effect. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a smart way of framing it. I wish I had put it in those terms in the book. It's it's true. The, I mean, the irony is just like brutal. Yeah, Baker, in his first speech uh, upon being sworn in as Secretary of State, welcomes this delegation of, of, of uh, leaders, scientists from all over the world at, at one of these early meetings, strategy meetings of the IPCC. And John Sununu is just a complicated figure, PhD in, in mechanical engineering, fashions himself this old engineer and becomes uh, immediately skeptical of the science and particularly the, the computer modeling that James Hansen and others have used, essentially <laughs> these future prediction machines uh, that are giant computers. And he's very skeptical. And he also has some rather, to me, in- incoherent theories about um, leftist forces trying to use this issue to uh, snuff out growth in capitalist society. Right. Yeah. So I always think that most of the true explanations for things are structural, but the narratives that appeal to us are personal. But in this case, you have convinced me that the person of John Sununu was really important in defining this as an inflection point and in a bad way. And he is a smart guy, but he is also the kind of guy I remember reporting at the time would talk about that he kept citing his high SAT scores even (laughs) when he was a member of the administration. So he probably thought he was a little smarter than he was. But was there also, you know, the whole apparatus of the fossil fuel industry doing what they do and have done and bringing their pressure and forces to bear? Is that also going on at the same time? The beginning of that starts to happen after Hansen's testimony, which so it is around the same time. It's 88 there start to be high-level meetings at, at the American Petroleum Institute and at Exxon. And 
they in at this time they start to develop um, a response basically because they feel they're spooked and their conclusions um, are essentially you know we need to participate in this policy conversation we need to make sure that any any regulations that are coming don't go beyond the science we need to emphasize uncertainty where it exists which is I, you know I'd be careful to point out is not saying we need to claim the science, the fundamental science is uncertain, but where there mm-hmm. are areas of uncertainty around some of the predictions. Uh, and then most importantly, we won't endorse any policy that will affect the bottom line. So that's the very beginning of it. And by 1989, you have the first appearance of this sort of small group of scientists who are close with industry. In some cases, I, I learned in my reporting, were being paid a couple thousand dollars for every time they wrote an op-ed. Um, mm-hmm. And they start popping up, exploiting basically the journalistic, you know, fetish for for two sides uh, um, of every story. And and the climate change story, of course, at that point didn't have two sides. There was just a fear about what to do. Um, and all of a sudden, you have national headlines about, you know, is this overblown? So that's going on simultaneously. But I, there was no evidence that I could find. And I spoke to the senior people at, you know, the American Petroleum Institute. I spoke to Sununu. I spoke to others in the White House that that industry was was putting any pressure on Sununu. And I think you're right. He's extremely arrogant. I asked him, you know, why do you think you understood the science and none of these other scientists uh, did? He said, because I'm a better scientist. And basically he said, yeah. like, they're all idiots. But let's be, let's be, I don't know if it's fair. Maybe it's not fair because I do blame industry. But with every change and every regulation, the industry affected that's going to be regulated since America has been regulating industry, have done what they can to prevent it. And when it came to the cigarette executives, they tried to do their best, but, you know, the public will, or at least the, the guardians of the public interest, our elected officials, overrode it. I mean, there are many cases, I'm not giving industry a pass, but there are many cases where industry can try to do this and it not working. It just did with climate change. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of parallels with tobacco industry. Of course, that effort took decades, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to to overwhelm. But in fact, the oil and gas industry hired the same lobbyists, the same the same firms that that tobacco industry had used. So and so, yeah, it it was not a new approach. I mean, it was they started out as basically the same approach that industry took with every health and environmental issue that that touched it. But the it did have a lot more success than, for instance, their efforts to stave off, you know, the Clean Air Act or or the amendments to Clean Air Act or benzene regulation and all the rest. Well, I think I know why, and I think you know why, because you, you mention it. So the, the Clean Water Act, you know, the Cuyahoga River catches on fire. It tends to concentrate the mind. Smog <laughs> is a huge is a huge problem. Just look outside in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's people undeniable. People dead on the street from smog. Yeah. Right. Climate, This the issue of climate change is predictive about the future, and to... Again, to be fair, and I'm maybe being making a deal with the devil here, you know, in my whole life, there's always been predictions about the impending population bomb and Malthusian predictions of population outstripping food supply. And by the way, 
some of that's right, but then they invent more food supply. So I do think it's a lot harder, and we exp- we know now that they should have done it, but it's a lot harder to make big changes about a possible future event when a lot of these other possible future dire events have not seemed to come to pass. Yeah, and that's that's one of Sununu's big um, references, the population <laughs> bomb. He saw the climate change as a second coming of that. Um, and... Yes, I think it does raise questions about our ability, you know, not just as a species to to, to really take to heart long-term threats and act on them if we don't feel uh, there's an immediate urgent, you know, emergency. But it also, you know, that same instinct is reflected in the way our economic system works and where economic policy heavily discounts um, future risk if it's far enough in the future. And, and certainly our political system where there's no elected term that's longer than six years. So there is this, you know, it's why the issue is called the, the wicked problem. It's, 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 uh, it, it, it frustrates all of our efforts to handle it because it takes advantage of all our, our weaknesses. As a journalist, what do you think about the elements of the Green New Deal, which I know you support basically, but the elements of the Green New Deal that are, let us say, not feasible, unrealistic, we're not going to get to 100% renewable energy grid by 2030, putting that in there as if it were possible. Well, I think it's really a statement of principles, and I think that's that's the value. Um, I think it's also, you know, it, it reframes the conversation in a way that I think is, is overdue and necessary. I would put it in the category of, uh, you know, I have a dream. You know, I have a dream that one day, uh, you know, and it's. I think it's in that register. Right, but what if he said by 1970? <laughs> that's my question. <laughs> right, that's right. I mean, I think that's fair. Um, I, I would also point out that it, there, there was a lot of legislation introduced in the late 80s, bipartisan legislation, including some massive omnibus, you know, energy restructuring uh, acts in, in mm-hmm. 88 uh, that were more ambitious. You know, I think it's, it's important to put the Green New Deal in, in, in a larger historical context and, and understand that, yes, some of it might seem crazy, but it, it hasn't always seemed crazy. And furthermore, it's not as crazy as what will happen if we don't do some kind of massive intervention. Is the biggest problem with the opinion uh, in general of the American public that too many people believe climate denialism just are ignorant on the science or is the biggest problem that even though a poll of people will show you that you know at least two-thirds are right on board with this is a problem they only rank it as you know the eighth biggest problem yeah that's the 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 political scientists call that you know salience issue but that that is changing um quite rapidly there was a poll today i saw that environment is now number two among Democratic voters, uh, still well behind healthcare, and I think that's changing across the board. It's not, you know, there yet, but I think there is a profound shift in public opinion. And as central as denialism seems to be to um, Republicanism now, I don't think that it's as hardened into the identity of a rank and file party members as something like um, abortion you know, pro-life. It it doesn't, I don't think it, I think it's much more manufactured. It's flimsier. And I think that an appeal like the one that's being made by, by people in support of the Green New Deal that attempts to reach beyond just the, the old partisan talking points, I think it can have a profound effect. And, and, you know, it's probably not enough, but 
I do think that's starting to turn. And you don't have to get 100% of people. You need a safe majority. And that, you know, that happened, that has happened with other issues in the past dramatically and suddenly. Uh, and I see no reason why it can't happen here, despite, you know, despite the fossil fuel industry, despite the Republican Party. I think there's a way of going around those institutional um, forces. Losing Earth, A Recent History. It's not one of those books with a huge subtitle, just a picture of the globe. And with that, I think we get it. Nathaniel Rich, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. I am ambivalent, actually, on the issue of impeachment. Now, ambivalent doesn't mean blasé. I think people take it to mean, nah, a little bit wishy-washy. Does not mean that at all. Ambivalent means of different minds. Often, in fact, just by definition, of strongly conflicting minds. Ambi, two ways, ambidextrous. And the valence, if you can hear that word, comes from the same word as value and valiant, right? The proto-Italic valio or valio which means to rule, to be strong. So it means equivalent thoughts of the same strength. Ambivalent is two ways of competing strengths. My bottom line when it comes to impeachment is that impeachment is an indictment and you could get the indictment, but you can't get the conviction. So therefore don't impeach. I would say that to almost every prosecutor who was accurately assessing what would happen if it went before a jury. I would advise... Well, then don't indict. I could have another bottom line beside this. Some people's bottom line is the president clearly obstructed, cosign, by the way, and I think you could prove the president obstructed. Well, maybe you can, but prove it to who? Prove it to all your other friends who know the president obstructed or prove it to 67 senators because that's who you have to prove it to, which brings me back to my first principles. Be smart, acknowledge reality, don't go for an impeachment if you're not going to get a conviction. And I also want it said, because sometimes you hear the opposite thought, and it is an inaccurate thought, Congress has no duty to impeach. You might say they do, but they don't. They don't by a fact of law. They have no duty to impeach the president, especially if they think there will be no conviction. Because impeachment is a political solution, that is true. And then you're permitted a political calculation And Nancy Pelosi has made that calculation, and that is why she is not going ahead with impeachment so far. Now, in the very first days, right after the Mueller report came out, my inclinations, I was a little on the fence then, but I I actually got stronger in my convictions because I was imbibing a lot of opinions that I thought were pretty poorly put, sort of a creed de corps for impeachment. For instance, this is Vox's Jennifer Williams on the Weed Slash Worldly podcast. This is the one they put out right after the Mueller report was released. They've also just straight up said, we don't have any interest in impeaching the president. And they said that before the report came out, sure. So to be fair, they have a chance to, to do that. But even since the report came out, I know at least one person has said, like, ah, it's too soon for us to really make that uh, decision. Like, if you just read... This document, which, again, like going back to the top line impression you get after reading this whole thing, is that this president is corrupt as fuck. He lies about everything. It's all about him. He puts himself and his interests well above anything like a constitutional duty to protect and defend the laws of the United States. There is no way that that 
should not for for the opposition party to think that that's okay and just well it's probably not useful for us electorally so we're just going to skip it because we don't think our voters like our base is into that or whatever the hell Nancy Pelosi and, and that calculation is that seems to me like they're also not standing up for their duties and yeah like maybe you would have no chance in going anywhere because they don't have power i get that but like Fucking just say something, right? Like, this is not okay. You should say something. You know, almost nothing expressed there is right. I mean, the emotion's the emotion. You can't say don't have emotion. But just in turn, in terms of facts, the base is into impeaching. It's everyone else. Pelosi correctly perceives that the actual practicalities of impeaching prevent her from bringing, say, charge one, corrupt as fuck. Charge two, how should I phrase charge two? Trump is a fucking liar. Yeah, great. So with arguments of that quality driving me, I firmed up my disinclination to impeach on what I think are warranted grounds that he did obstruct the investigation. Further factoring into this is something I was noticing, which is that the most pro-impeachment forces, people who work themselves into the greatest froth over impeachment, were always citing non-impeachable offenses. His Trump's bad policies, Trump's low character, Trump's lies. Yes, you can impeach over anything, but I think these are bad reasons to impeach. Not terrible reasons to be a person, but bad reasons to impeach. And it bothered me because in one breath, we have to impeach because of these facts. In the next breath, they'd be citing, I don't know, border policy. I think if we did a study of the strongest voices, uh, even even the ones who are defined as experts on the law and impeachment, you would find that the other policy positions that they took and publicly took were far, far on the anti-Trump side. There's nothing wrong with being far, far on the anti-Trump side, but the most anti-Trump people also were feeling that the report most indicated that you had to impeach. It was hard to separate their so-called legal expertise from their political judgment. I mean, I think you would find a very strong correlation between phrases like babies in cages or racist president, or even the phrase Republican tax cuts, a correlation between people using those phrases and the people who are calling to impeach. On the one hand, there's some legitimacy to this. Because, I've said it three, four times so far, impeachment is political. And if there were enough people who were sufficiently appalled by the babies in cages, then the U.S. Senate would vote to convict, right? That impeachment vote would find itself planted in the fertile soil of senators who would go ahead and do the right thing and not the rocky ground of Republican intransigence. But just as I wouldn't advise a farmer to plant where he thinks the plant should grow, but rather where the plant will go, I'm still hesitant to say, go ahead and impeach because this is the world we live in. It looks like that world we live in is going to have Trump as president for at least another couple years. But then I began to hear arguments that worked on me a lot better. Jamel Bowie was on the What Next podcast, and I can't say I disagreed with a lot of what he was laying down. Here, listen. What I what I find sort of baffling, I guess, is the extent to which opponents of the president and, and many Democrats and, and many observers have simply presupposed that there's no way to shape public narratives, that politics is purely a game of reaction, 
and that one reacts to what the public says they want or says they care about. And if if that doesn't work, then there's nothing else you can do. But we know simply from the fact that Donald Trump is the president, that we can move and shape public opinion and public behavior in unexpected and unanticipated ways. And so why not work at that? Why not use this clear procedure within the Constitution to do something about the fact that the President of the United States does not value the Constitution, is lawless or has attempted to act in a lawless manner, and wants to serve another four years to do more of the same? Good point. Now, I was talking to Jamel yesterday, and I told him that I thought he did a good job on the podcast, but I also told him, you know, I think the calculation relies a lot on what you assume the background conditions to be. He agreed with that. You know, we were talking about the costs of not impeaching. I suspected when I heard him on What Next that he thinks that if the Democrats don't confront Trump, Trump is likely to win. Indeed, Jamel does think that. I don't know how likely he thinks it. I think he's wrong, but I don't think he's terribly wrong. I think that Trump is, I don't know, has about a 45% chance of winning. Jamel thinks it's likely that he will win re-election if he's not removed from office. But you have to realize how those assumptions perhaps assumptions based on fact and data, how those assumptions will factor in to a desire for confrontation on what is likely, I think we could still say likely to be, a losing impeachment vote or the conviction won't happen. But you know, that is a good point that just engaging in the fight could turn the polls around. Now, lucky for me and my ambivalence, which I have to sit with, there was a voice who very neatly summarized exactly where I am on this one. This was on the Chris Hayes show last night, and here is that voice. Keep in mind, we do not have, there's no way that we're going to get uh, 20 votes in uh, the Senate. We can indict him, basically, but then what does the Senate do? But I also believe that there will come a point in time, possibly, where the evidence will be so overwhelming, uh, particularly when you look at the Mueller report, that the public will say, you know what, this man, uh, President Trump, does not reflect our values. We're tired of the lies. We're tired of him instructing people to lie. We're tired of the deceit. And then I, and then I think they'll look and see what have they've gotten from him, uh, higher taxes for the middle class. Uh, and they're going to say, wait a minute, all the thing, a lot of the things, most of the things he said he was going to do, he did not do. Yes, I agree with that exactly. The House will keep looking into Trump's nefarious dealings. The administration stonewalling all the investigations will be more grist for the impeachment mill. The public could start clamoring for impeachment. And if they do, voices like the one who you just heard will be prominent. That's Elijah Cummings. He actually runs the House Oversight Committee. He is not giving up. He is digging in. And that is heartening. Unambivalently so. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced the gist. They would like you to know that John Sununu is listed in Wikipedia as one of the few people of color to be governor of a state. Turns out the Sununus were Lebanese somewhere in the family tree. I've got to say that presently that tree is a lot more maple than cedar. Tia Raphael, Slate's senior producer of podcasts, she asks, who knew that the Sununu whom you refer to would be immune to charges that he thinks they'll be a train to Honolulu, does Sununu. The gist, 
A big boo-boo accrues to the Sununu you refer to. He's a buffoon who grew to subscribe to voodoo when it comes to the deep doo-doo he was putting the earth through. Oomperu de Peru Ooh, that's kind of on the nose. And thanks for listening.